This is the Excellent Reception Podcast. I know it's been a while, but we're back. I'm your host, Little Dave, and welcome to another episode of Excellent Reception, the podcast where we talk about timeless music and help tell the stories behind the songs to help you better understand why they're so amazing. Before we get started, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are available. Please take the time to leave a review. These help to push up our rankings in the podcast charts so more people can discover excellent reception. Also, check out our website, www.excellentreception.com for more information about the artist and the songs we have featured on the podcast. During the 1950s, jazz music was at the height of its popularity. Artists were selling out shows around the world and thousands of records in the stores. But as the 1960s came in, other forms of music, like rock and roll and soul music, had fully taken over dominating the radio and record sales. As diverse as it has become as a genre, the overall straight-ahead sound of jazz had grown a bit stagnant. Throughout the 1960s, jazz artists could be heard pushing to elevate jazz to higher levels by experimenting with new instruments, textures, and melodic compositions. By the end of the decade, and throughout the 70s, the entire definition of what jazz is and what jazz had the potential to be would shift dramatically. One of the new forms that emerged was a style that many refer to as spiritual jazz. During this time period, the United States was going through some of the biggest struggles of the civil rights movement. Black people in this country were developing a new sense of self-awareness through learning about their history and rethinking their place in the world. Jazz music proved to be a place where the frustrations of racism and injustice could be communicated. But it also became a place to find a sense of freedom and higher purpose. As these musicians pushed to take the music to a new level, they used instrumentation to search for God within themselves and create a sense of oneness with the universe. Many artists began incorporating influences such as Egyptian iconography, astrology, Eastern mysticism, Islamic ideology, and abstract expressionism into their compositions. This was a way to share with the world their newfound spiritual awakening. Existing somewhere between fusion and the avant-garde, spiritual jazz or astral jazz would feature musicians using sounds to explore divinity, metaphysical ideas, other planes of existence, and galaxies outside of our own. On today's episode of Excellent Reception, we are going to look at jazz musicians who have used their music as a way to transcend beyond the world we know. There are almost too many noteworthy songs and artists to mention around this subject matter, but here are just a handful to get you started. Now, this is going to be a special two-part episode. So in this part, we're going to feature the music of John Coltrane, Alice Coltrane, Sun Ra, Gary Bartz, featuring Andy Bay, Michael White, and Doug and Gene Karn. 
Let's get started. Excellent reception. It's often said that the spiritual jazz movement was brought to the masses through the work of the legendary saxophonist John Coltrane. His journey was reflective of what was happening with a lot of musicians at the time. Throughout the early part of his career, John suffered through addictions to heroin and alcohol that almost cost him his profession and his life. A religious experience in 1957 forced him to turn his life around and get clean. He gained a newfound interest in studying faith and spirituality, which started to have an impact on how he created music. Exploring the methods used in the music of many Eastern religions, he began to look at playing the saxophone as a way of praying to God. In addition to his spiritual studies, Coltrane began to develop his own set of musical theories and methodologies. One of his most notable innovations was the Coltrane Circle, a tone chart that depicted his own version of the Circle of Fifths. He was known to draw these charts on breaks between live sets, and these ideas would influence his solo performances on some of his biggest records. One of the most well-known copies of these charts was given to multi-instrumentalist and professor Youssef Latif as a gift from Coltrane. The chart would later be used in Latif's book, Repository of Scales and Melodic Patterns. The geometric principles shown on the Coltrane circle are said to fall closely in line with Albert Einstein's quantum theory. Could it be that John was using musical theory, mathematics, and some sort of sacred geometry to find a universal truth? In 1964, John would write and record an album that would be intended as an offering to the creator. This project would be his greatest opus, A Love Supreme. With a love supreme, he declared his awareness of a higher power and his journey on a spiritual path. Coltrane expressed his beliefs in our universal connection to God across all religions and faiths, using repetitive melodic motifs and playing them in every key possible. There are barely any lyrics, but with just pure emotion and musical expression, John Coltrane and his quartet are able to communicate many complex ideas with the listener. A Love Supreme would go on to open the doors for a new era of jazz. Let's listen to a little bit of acknowledgement from A Love Supreme.
is the Excellent Reception Podcast. You really can't have a talk about spirituality and jazz without mentioning pianist and harpist Alice Coltrane. Yes, she's the wife of John Coltrane, but her accomplishments are profound enough that she should never be put in the shadow. She's had a long career working as a classical and jazz pianist, as well as playing in a variety of bands with musicians like Terry Gibbs, Joe Henderson, McCoy Tyner, and more. She was also one of only a few jazz harpists in existence. Both John and Alice had a mutual interest in spirituality, and their relationship played a huge role in creating the perfect environment for the conception of a love supreme. After John died, Alice carried their vision forward and recorded a huge catalog of solo projects. To help her through the intense grief, she sought out guidance from a guru named Swami Sanchandananda and eventually removed herself from secular life after becoming his disciple. She went on to establish the Vedantic Center in California, a sanctuary for those of all faiths to come together, where she would become a Swamini, a spiritual director and teacher. This new path laid the groundwork for the rest of her life, and her music quickly evolved along with it. The themes now focused on deep meditation and seeking divine wisdom. Her new compositions were built around traditional Hindu chants, droning synthesizers, Indian instruments, her signature harp, and experimental song structures. One of Alice Coltrane's most well-known songs is the title track from her fourth album, Journey in Sanchandananda. This album was inspired by the guru she studied with, her travels to India and Sri Lanka, as well as her personal journey towards enlightenment. Let's listen to that now. Here is Alice Coltrane with Journey in Sanchandananda. Yeah. 
Herman Blount is the birth name of the pianist who would go on to be known around the world and the universe as Sun Ra. Sun Ra was more than just a name. It was an entire persona. Long before John Coltrane would have us searching the heavens, Sun Ra was using his music as a way to explore the cosmos. He claimed that he was teleported away to the planet of Saturn during the late 1930s. The beings that he encountered told him to quit college and devote his entire life to music in order to save the world from chaos. Throughout the next decade, he would study music intensely, as well as begin building his personal worldview by absorbing the ideas and philosophies from numerology, Freemasonry, ancient Egyptian mysticism, and black nationalism. Sun Ra would go on to form his own big band, the Sun Ra Orchestra, out of an often rotating group of like-minded musicians. The group would build on the mythos of the Sun Ra persona by wearing outlandish, Egyptian-influenced, and space-themed costumes during performances. The orchestra would move across the country from Chicago to New York City, before finally settling in the Germantown section of Philadelphia in 1968, where they still can be found living as a communal household today. From the mid-1950s all the way through to the 1990s, Sun Ra and his orchestra would be extremely prolific. They recorded over a hundred mostly self-released albums and wrote well over a thousand songs. They have one of the biggest discographies in history. Sun Ra's compositions experiment with a wide variety of playing techniques and testing the limits of styles, from doo-wop to bebop to classical to avant-garde. Each song was full of his outer-worldly philosophies and cosmic perspectives. Let's listen to what may be their biggest signature tune, Space is the Place, from the album of the same name. We're only going to listen to a short excerpt, because the full song is a whopping 21 minutes long. So here we go. Excellent reception. Oh, oh, oh. 
This is the Excellent Reception Podcast. It's hard not to talk about jazz music with themes of enlightenment and not mention the song Celestial Blues. It was recorded by Gary Bartz's band NTU Troop and featured the lyrics and vocals of Andy Bay. These artists are giants within the world of jazz music. Saxophonist Gary Bartz has played with everyone from Miles Davis to Max Roach to Roy Ayers and advanced the genre by fusing it with funk, soul, and blues. Singer and pianist Andy Bay has used his four-octave baritone voice to carve his own lane, and he has contributed his distinctive sound to many jazz classics. In 1970 and 1971, Bartz recorded a two-volume set of albums called Harlem Bush Music. The project was centered around advancing the state of black life in America through their musical heritage. One of the standout songs from this release was Celestial Blues, which reminds us that we should get back to the essence of life. Its foundation is a bare-bones groove built on a slow-rolling drum pattern played by Harold White and a deep, bubbling bass line played by Ron Carter. On top of that, Andy Bay and Gary Bartz loosen up the song by working with much jazzier riffs and tinkering with more complicated melodies. The duo created a special bit of magic with the way that they perform together. Andy sings about meditation and lifting up spirits, while Gary plays along, matching Bay's words note for note. They're in perfect unison for much of the song, but when it's time to improvise, they break free of their tethered existence and move in their own orbits around the rhythm. Andy Bay would later go on to record another version of Celestial Blues with the help of experimental rock producer William S. Fisher for Bay's debut solo album, Experience and Judgment. This version was slower and even funkier. But let's listen to the original. Here is Gary Bart's NTU Troupe featuring Andy Bay with Celestial Blues. Thank you. 
excellent reception. Even though jazz can be played with virtually any instrument, people seem to associate the genre with just a handful of key instruments. One instrument that most people would not expect is the violin. Violins, in most cases, are known to be used for very well-planned and structured performances, like in classical music. They are rarely used for open-ended improvisation, like we find in jazz music. Musician, composer, and band leader Michael White dedicated his life to the violin. He started playing at the age of six and was trained in Western classical by Italian and German maestros. He would go on to develop a passion for jazz that would lead him to push aside all of his classical training and develop his own techniques and styles. He was one of the first musicians to play violin in avant-garde jazz and jazz rock fusion. He spent years bringing his groundbreaking sound to bands led by greats like Wes Montgomery, Eric Dolphy, and even Sunrod during his New York years. In the 1970s, Michael would begin his time as a band leader and start recording a series of albums for Impulse Recordings. One to take note of is his second album, titled Numa, which means the vital spirit, soul, or creative force of a person. Half of the album was five movements of abstract performance in which he seemingly explores every possible sound you could get out of a violin. The remainder of the album contained straight-ahead songs. One of the most moving of these was the Blessing Song, a simple but extremely moving composition. Instead of a full drum track, it just has simple hand percussion, which gives it a feeling of an ancient ritual. The song moves along at a slow pace, while Edwin Kelly and Ray Drummond play piano and bass underneath Michael White's soaring violin solos. There is a chorus of women singing a beautiful chant throughout the song. When they finally begin to sing the lyrics, the message becomes clear. Lord, come into thy heart with thy blessing. Here is Michael White with the blessing song. Thank you. 
When you think of great jazz record labels, names like Blue Note, Verve, and Impulse come to mind. But you can't forget the Black-owned independent record label, Black Jazz Records. Black Jazz is probably best remembered for their iconic black and white album cover designs that to this day make them stand out in record stores, and their logo, which showed two black hands giving each other dap. Musically, they focused on signing young African-American jazz artists who were taking music beyond the traditional style, especially artists who were making music with a spiritual or political context. The biggest selling albums on Black Jazz Records came from a young couple named Doug and Gene Karn. Doug is a multi-instrumentalist with a focus on piano and organ. Gene is a vocalist with a five-octave vocal range. Together, they took the framework of what jazz artists were doing a generation before them and gave it a modern-day makeover by fusing it with soul and funk overtones. Their debut album, Infinize, was largely made up of amazing cover versions of songs by some of their biggest influences, Horace Silver, Wayne Shorter, and McCoy Tyner. Doug would take these well-known instrumental compositions and write all new lyrics. These new lyrics, combined with Gene's powerful vocals, would completely elevate the song beyond its intended meaning. Unfortunately, the couple would only record three albums before their divorce. Gene Karn would go on to signing with Philadelphia International Records and having a successful career as an R&B artist and songwriter. She's probably best known for her hit, Don't Let It Go To Your Head. Doug Karn would continue to record as a jazz artist and band leader. Black Jazz Records would eventually stop releasing music in 1975, but their legacy would continue to grow as new generations of music lovers would develop an interest in their catalog. One of Doug and Gene Carn's most ambitious cover versions was of John Coltrane's Acknowledgement, the opening song from A Love Supreme. Let's listen to it now.
This is the Excellent Reception Podcast. Well, that concludes part one of our look at spiritual jazz music. Stay tuned. Part two is coming up very soon. But for now, I want to thank you once again for tuning in to Excellent Reception. If you love what we're doing here, please spread the word to other music lovers you know. Make sure to check us out at excellentreception.com. And if you haven't done it yet, please subscribe to the podcast so you can be the first to hear new episodes. Also, you can listen to my broadcast radio show, Eavesdrop Radio, in Philadelphia, every Friday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. on WKDU 91.7 FM or streaming live at wkdu.org. So until next time, this is your host, Little Dave, signing off for excellent reception, where we're always coming in loud and clear with the sounds you need to hear. Excellent reception.